Good morning, church. It's a joy and honor to be here with you this weekend for Sanctity of Life Sunday. I normally go at 11 o'clock, so it's nice to see some new faces here this morning. Well, a number of years ago, my family and I, we went biking in San Francisco. And we went to this quaint little seaside town called Sausalito. Have you ever been there? Beautiful, fun town. We pulled up, parked our bikes, and we were walking about to go in. And my wife was there with me, and I noticed these two college-age girls taking donations for the cause of helping the polar bears. I said to my wife, I said, give me a minute. I just want to ask them a question. So I walked up. I said, hey, my name is Sean. I'm just curious. You're taking money to help the polar bears. I said, good for you. I'm curious. Are you pro-life? Do you value all life or are you pro-choice? The moment I said this, I got this look of condescension and all these assumptions about me came spilling forth. Some correct, some not correct. She goes, oh, I bet you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, whether I'm, I'm not, it's actually irrelevant. I'm just curious. You are taking money to help these polar bears a long ways away you've never seen. What about the most vulnerable human beings amongst us? Do you care about the unborn? Well, we started going back and forth. She calls her friend over and she says, hey, this guy has an issue with pro-choice. And her friend looks at me, I'll never forget it. She goes, oh... I've had four abortions, and they felt good. I think she was lying, but they're sitting there mocking me. And she says, do you actually think an embryo is a human being? I said, I think it's a distinct living human being. She goes, how do you know embryos even exist? Do you have one inside of you? I said, how do you know polar bears exist? Do you have one inside of you? <laughs> Obviously, the conversation descended quickly. I've actually found most people are willing to have gracious conversations if you just listen and treat them the way that you want to, but this time, simply asking the question, they got upset. See, the temptation is as human beings, and especially as Christians, on a topic as divisive as pro-life, to just say, you know what, I'm going to let somebody else talk about this. This is not my issue. I don't want to get people upset. I don't want somebody yelling at me. I don't want to jeopardize a relationship, and so we just don't talk about it. Friends, I think that is a colossal mistake. Yes, we need to have tact. Yes, we need to be gracious. But I still teach here part-time. I'm full-time at Biola, like Pastor Ty mentioned. But I taught here for 10 years. So I was the head of the Bible department. And I would spend about two weeks with my seniors in the Worldview Bible class walking through the scientific, philosophical, and biblical case for pro-life. And one class graduated in spring. A girl came back the next fall who started at Saddleback Junior College, came up to my classroom to visit me. She said, hey, Mr. McDowell, I wanted to come by and say hi and share a story with you. I said, hey, what's going on? She said, well, do you remember last year when we were studying the case for pro-life? I said, sure, how could I forget? She said, what I didn't tell you is that while we were actually studying this, a good friend of mine at a public school in the area got pregnant, accidentally didn't mean to, and she was thinking about having an abortion. I took what we talked about in class and I shared it with her. <laughs> and just last week, the baby was born. 
I kid you not, the next thing she says is, well, I didn't know if you wanted to hear this. I said, what do you mean you didn't know if I wanted to know that? That's one of the most significant things somebody could share with me. Friends, I'm telling you, there is a powerful yet simple case for the unborn. And if we simply take the time to understand it and be prepared in the right way at the right time, God can use us to protect human life, which can echo for eternity. You see, what happens is because maybe we haven't taken the time to really think about this issue. We're afraid to get in conversations because someone might ask us something we don't know. But what I've found is when we not only know what we believe, but why, there's a confidence that comes and a willingness to speak about the issue. That's what we're going to look at this morning. But before we go any further, let me frame what this issue is. Because with every ethical issue, I often ask myself, what's at the heart of it? What's the big question that sets this apart? And here's what I think it is on the question of abortion. So imagine after church today, you go home and your back is turned to the kitchen, and you're doing the dishes. Now, I know for some of you this takes a lot of imagination. <laughs> you're doing the dishes, and all of a sudden in comes maybe your son, or a sibling, or your granddaughter, a four or five-year-old kid, and you can't see him, and you hear this question, Mommy, Papa, can I kill this? Now, before you say yes or no, what question would you ask back? What is it? Yes, if you turned around and it was a cockroach, what would you say? Yeah, go for it. Turn around, it's a cat, what would you say? Hurry up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, I am 100% kidding, okay? Just keeping it light. Don't harm animals. If you turn around, it's a bunny, you'd be like, whoa, why do you want to harm a bunny? That's cute. If you turn around, the five-year-old's like, yeah, I grabbed this infant out of a carriage down the street. Can I kill this? You go, whoa, time out. The answer is obviously no. And even though you're five, you need some serious counseling, right? Now stop and think about this for a second. Why is it that you would treat a cockroach differently than you should treat a bunny, different than you should treat a human being? And the answer is how we treat something depends upon what it is. That's why we treat a rock differently than we should treat an animal. And we treat an animal differently than we should treat a human being. How we treat something depends upon, to use a fancy word, metaphysically, what it is. You realize the question of abortion, the heart of the question is, what is the unborn? What is it? If it's just a bunch of tissues or cells, then no justification is necessary any more than having a tumor taken out. But if the unborn is a valuable member of the human race, then what justification is adequate? Friends, have you ever asked the question, why have Christians historically been almost unanimously pro-life? It's because what we believe about not only unborn, but what we believe about all human beings. You see, we have this doctrine in Genesis chapter 1 that says God made human beings, male and female, in his image. That's where human value comes from. It's not your race. 
Not how much money you have, not your gender, not your size, not how popular you are, not how many friends you have on Instagram or Facebook. Those are all secondary. Christians have said we will fight and protect the unborn because all human beings have value. In fact, James 1.27 says this. This is the brother of Jesus. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction, affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, why did Christians care about widows and orphans? In the ancient Greco-Roman culture, widows and orphans had minimal societal value. They were considered dregs on society. They couldn't contribute in war, probably couldn't contribute in government, cost money. Christians come around and go, wait a minute. Those things are irrelevant. Widows and orphans and all human beings are made in the image of God and deserve value and dignity as human beings. That's why Christians almost unanimously have started hospitals and orphanages and places like the Urban Rescue Mission to care for the poor because the poor are made in the image of God. I don't know any other group of people, of human beings, made in the image of God, more vulnerable than the unborn. Than the unborn. And please let me say this, though, as we jump into this. Maybe four or five weeks ago, I was speaking with a pregnancy resource director about her experience. One thing she shared with me is, interestingly enough, they minister to both guys and both women who have experienced hurt and pain through various and different ways related to abortion. I know, speaking in an audience like this, there's probably a lot of you here who have experiences related to this, personal or secondary. And the mere fact that we talk about it in church might bring up some wounds. Please hear me. God loves you. Having an abortion is not the unforgivable sin. God weeps and hurts if you've been through this. And I have talked to women who have had an abortion bury it down for years. And all the hurt that we live when we have any unconfessed sin and guilt in our life was manifest. There's such a freedom that comes from the Bible, it says, from experiencing the forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ. Can I tell you this, church, for your pastoral staff, all the way down. If you come talk to them, and I'll encourage you, they're not going to say, what? I wouldn't have expected you. Gosh, they're not going to say that. They're not going to go, whoa, man, I can't believe it. They're just going to sit here and go, thank you for sharing with me. Let's pray. We will cry with you, help you work through this, and experience the love and grace that Jesus has for you. Amen? With that said, let's talk about how we can make a case for the unborn. I would encourage you to write this down. I'm going to give you some very simple steps that you can use. Now, I don't have to write it down because I have photographic memory. I just don't have any film. <laughs> now, if you didn't get that, ask somebody over 30. <laughs> I used to make my students memorize this. Very simple steps. So many times in conversation, on planes, talking with people, you're pro-life, why? I'll say, you know what, can I just share with you some basic steps I've learned? And it's amazing. There's a powerful case for the unborn. So let's start within the scientific realm. Now, why start here? Look, if Scripture teaches that life begins in conception, 
And even David, we know in Psalms, he says, I was sinful from the moment my mother conceived me. Isn't that interesting? We know biblically that the unborn are considered valuable human beings. If the Bible teaches this, and we go to science, and we do proper science, guess what we're going to find? The science matches up with what the scriptures teach, if we do it right. So here's a simple scientific case. Number one, the unborn is alive. The unborn is alive. And guess what? There's no scientific debate about this. It's incontrovertible. The mom's alive, the dad's alive, the egg's alive, the sperm's alive, the embryo is alive. There's no period of non-life from mating until birth. It's alive. Now, if you look in a biology textbook, there will be certain characteristics that are distinctive of living things versus non-living things. And an embryo has all of them. Things like response to stimuli, biological growth. All of these characteristics that we associate with life, things like metabolism, you find in the unborn. By the way, what does abortion do? It does what? It kills something. You can only kill something that's alive. <laughs> Friends, there's no scientific debate that the unborn is alive. But let's take a step back and just imagine, just entertain the idea. What if we didn't know for sure when life begins? Because you've heard this before, right? Well, we don't know when life begins, therefore abortion should be permissible. Do you remember during Obama's first campaign to become president, his Republican challenger was who? His first term. It was John McCain. Rick Warren hosted a very interesting forum where the two presidential candidates came in. He asked him the exact same questions, but they couldn't hear each other's responses because one was backstage while the other spoke. How many of you remember this and heard some of it? Okay, good, quite a few of you do. Well, they asked questions on all sorts of issues, but there was a question about pro-life and pro-choice. He asked McCain, are you pro-life? He said, I'm pro-life. When does life begin? He says, at conception. Goes to Obama, says he's pro-choice. He says, when do you think life begins? And Obama distinctly said, that's above my pay grade. Do you remember this? Now think about his reasoning. Now I would have pressed back if it was me on stage. I would have said, oh, so you admit you don't know when life begins, therefore you must be pro-life if you're going to be consistent. Now why would I say that? His thinking was, if we don't know, you should be able to have the abortion. But stop and think about it. In every other circumstance in life, if we're not sure if there's life or not, we always err on the side of protecting life. Always. So does anybody know who's the only sitting president who wrote a book? Does anyone know? Donald Trump, is not, he hasn't written it while he's a sitting president. Obama wrote books not while he was president. Who was it? Not Carter? Reagan. Ronald Reagan. You know what book he wrote? Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation with C. Everett Koop. New York Times didn't even review it, which tells you something about the New York Times. You know what he said? 
He said, if we become a nation that continues to support abortion, it will cheapen all of life in our society, and he could not have been more correct. You know what example he used in there? He says, some people will say, we don't know when life begins, therefore we should have an abortion. In that book, he says, let me give you an example. Imagine you have a body, and you're not sure if that body is alive or dead. Do you go ahead and bury it? Anyone? You're laughing because it's obvious. If there's the possibility that it's alive, you don't bury it. You only bury it when you're certain that there's no life. Flip that to the unborn. Even if we didn't know and there's the possibility of life, we should err on the side of protecting it. Look, when they leveled our property of our church, and I saw they showed it, they showed it in church one morning, I forget what morning it was, like the chapel falling down. I'm sure they weren't having a conversation going, well, if you check to make sure everybody's out of there, I don't know. There could be kids. We don't know. It's above our pay grade whether there's kids or not. Let's go ahead and blow it up. <laughs> Honestly, that would be negligence even if there weren't. You make sure there's no life before you take action. Now, we know life begins at conception. We know the unborn is alive. But even if we didn't, you should err on the side of protecting it. Second point, the unborn is separate from the mother. The unborn is separate from the mother. The unborn is a distinct organism from the mom. Now, the unborn may be inside of her. It may be dependent upon her. That is true. But it is a distinct organism organism from the mother. How can I say this? The most basic is at the moment of conception or very quickly thereafter. You have a unique DNA fingerprint for that organism. You can't have two DNA fingerprints as an individual human being. The unborn has a distinct DNA fingerprint from the mother. The unborn also for the moment of conception we know has a distinct gender from the mother. At 22 days, roughly, it has a very basic heartbeat different from the mother. In fact, the unborn, depending on who the father is, could have a different race from the mother. There's no question that the unborn is dependent upon the mom. There's no question it's physically inside the mother. But biologically speaking, it is a distinct organism from the mom. So this unborn, whatever it is, is living. It's distinct from the mother. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, wait a minute, the most common objection we often hear is a woman can do whatever she wants to with her own body. It's my body. Keep the government out of my body. I can do whatever I want to with my body. That's kind of indicative of where we've come as a culture. If it feels good, I am completely autonomous over my own body, and you have no right to judge me. That's essentially the ethos of where our culture's gone. So is it right? Does a woman have a right to do whatever she wants to with her own body? Well, first off, biologically, it's not her body. It's dependent on her body. It's inside her body. But biologically speaking, it is not her body. But second... Do you really have the right to do whatever you want to with your own body? Do you? 
men and women, can you do whatever you want with your bodies? If you decide after church, and maybe I should not use this example, it just makes the point. If you decide after church, you know what? I like the weather, Southern California. I'm just going to go, you know, without anything on, I'm going to go running down Camino Capistrano naked. And your defense to the police is, it's my body. I can do whatever I want to. What's the police going to say? No, no, you can't do what you want to, even if it's your body. And they'll actually say, you know what? You're harming the rest of us. Right? That's what they would say. So you actually can do what you want to with your body until it harms someone else. There is a limitation upon what we can do with our bodies. So the unborn is alive, no debate about that. Second, it's distinct from its mom. Third, and perhaps most important, the unborn is human. The unborn is a human being. Now, how would we know this? Well, it's actually kind of simple biologically. Because you see, if the mom is human, and the dad is human, it's a human. Thank you. We know it for sure. I have three kids. Maybe you've seen them running around if you ever come to 11 o'clock service. 13, 10, and 5. And when, when my wife was pregnant with our third, we already had a boy and a girl. So there were questions and conversations about what we would have. I'll tell you a conversation we never had. My wife never said, I just, you know, I'd love to have a dolphin. I think it'd be so fun. I never said a dolphin, let's have a cheetah. Look how fast cheetahs are. Like, you could tear it up on the soccer field. Like, we didn't have that conversation. We did have a conversation about what we would have. Limited to two options, male and female. Because since my wife is human and I'm human, the unborn would be human. There's another way we know what the unborn is, by simply looking at the DNA. If you had the embryo of, say, a monkey and a human being, the human eye might not be able to tell the difference. But you look at the DNA and it unmistakably would tell us that the unborn is human. Friends, what I just shared with you is incontrovertible, scientifically speaking. Every embryology textbook I've seen, I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen a lot, and biology textbook tells us the unborn from the moment of conception is alive, it's a distinct organism from the mother, and it's human. You might be sitting here going, gosh, when you frame it that way, case closed, this is powerful. I would agree with you, but many in our culture would not. Quite obviously. And you know what the move is people will take? They'll say, well, the unborn might be human, but they're not what? Not viable. They're a, the unborn might be a human being, but it is not a person. Good job. See, what's happened classically, we talk about human rights. If you're just human, you have rights being human. Now it's shifted that you only have rights if you're a person. Now that raises an obvious question. What's the difference between a human and a person? Can you have a non-person human? Can you have a human that's not a person? Now, you can, have, you can have a person that's not a human. Angels are persons, but they're not humans. 
but can you have a human being who's not a person? Now, if the anti-life side, and you say, why do you call them anti-life? Why don't you call them pro-choice? Because I watched CNN yesterday, and they didn't even give the dignity of the march of life to call them a march for pro-life. They call them march for anti-abortion. So if you're in the anti-life side, what you have to do is give us some criteria by which persons outside of the womb, humans outside of the womb qualify as persons, but those inside of the womb don't. Does that make sense? If you're going to disqualify the unborn from having a right to life, you have to show something the unborn lacks about personhood that the rest of us have. Here's the problem. Any criteria you come up with will exclude some member of the human personhood race that we know are persons. So the unborn is different. I'm going to give you an acronym. I didn't come up with this. I wish I had made it up, but it's one that I use, and it's just simply SLED. I honestly hope you'll memorize this and be ready to just simply share it with somebody because there are differences between the born and the unborn. One first one, the S stands for size. Yes, the unborn is typically, in almost all cases, smaller than those outside of the womb. That's typical. Yes, the unborn is smaller. Here's the question. Does your value and right to life come from your size? Does size determine value? If so, imagine what would follow. Are men, therefore, more valuable than women? Men, don't answer that. The tallest race are the Swedes of men, about 6'1". The shortest, the Japanese, about 5'5". Five, five. Are the Swedish and those from the Netherlands more valuable than the Japanese? Of course not. Is Shaquille O'Neal more valuable than Hillary Clinton? Actually, don't answer that one either. <laughs> your size doesn't determine your value. In fact, one of the most powerful pro-life books that was turned into a kid's movie by Dr. Seuss is what story? Anyone know? You got it. Horton Hears a Who. How many of you know that story? What's the story about? They find this speck, and there's this really small civilization. The theme is they're so small, they can't be persons. And what's the famous line in Horton Hears a Who? A person is a person no matter how small. Size doesn't determine value or personhood. L is level of development. Are the unborn less developed than those outside of the womb? In almost all cases, yes. Does your value come from how developed you are? Now let's play this out. Imagine your value comes from how developed they are. Would we have equal value in this room? No. Your brain's not fully formed until you're 25 to 30 years old. Does that mean teenagers have less value? Yes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I have one, so I can answer that way. No, it doesn't. Do teenagers have more valuable value than elementary kids? Do they have more valuable than two-year-olds? Do two-year-olds have more value than a newborn? Does a newborn have more value than one's just a month about to be born? Do you see, development is a continuum through all of life. Our value, thank God, is not tied to our level of development. 
So size, level, development, environment. Is the unborn in a different environment than one outside of the womb? Yes. But does where you are determine your value? Does your value change when you shift locations? The answer should obviously be no. There's a story I read, I can't remember how long ago it was, about a baby that was born, and if I remember, it was around like 21 weeks. It was about a pound, barely, I don't even think a foot long. You could see the baby and just hold it in a hand. And this baby was young enough to survive and develop without any serious problems as far as they're aware. Well, can you imagine that baby born at, say, 21 weeks? At 24 weeks, it's healthy, it's in a crib, Doctor walks up with a scalpel, decides to cut that baby up, kills it. What would everybody say? That's murder. That exact doctor, exact scalpel, exact baby, exact operating room. If that baby was still inside the mother, people would call it compassion. How does the value of that particular baby change because of where it is? How does it change because of where it is? Your environment does, if your environment changes, it doesn't shape your value. Size, level development, environment, and last degree of dependency. Does your value come from how dependent you are on somebody else? Does that mean people on a kidney machine have less value than those who are not? Is the unborn dependent on the mom? Yeah. I remember the first year I was teaching here, I asked my class, I said, my high school seniors, I said, do you think value comes from being dependent? And I'll never forget, like our star football player, he goes, man, I'm still dependent on my mom. It was this cute but moment of like this tough football kid knows he needs his mommy. Does that mean he has less value? The answer was, of course not. In fact, think about it this way. Imagine you go to Bozeman, Montana. How many inches of snow did he say? Like 57 or something crazy like that. Imagine you go snowmobiling up in Bozeman, Montana. And you come across and you see another snowmobile that's crashed into a tree on the side, the driver's unconscious, and a two-year-old is sitting there wide-eyed and awake. You're the only one for miles. Is the survival of that two-year-old dependent entirely upon you? Yes. Does that give you the freedom not to protect it, or does that give you the responsibility because it's dependent upon you to protect it? I think the obvious answer is, the right thing to do, the morally right thing to do, even if it's dependent upon you, is to protect that child. Friends, the unborn is different from one outside of the womb, but there is no criteria significant enough to say, therefore the unborn can be disqualified as persons and lose their value to life. This week, we had a pro-life speaker here at CVCS, and afterwards, we went and talked to my students. And one of my students said, well, if you look at like a 23-week-year-old baby, and I was actually showing him pictures on, uh, I was showing him pictures from Google of how doctors now go in and can perform surgery on the unborn. There's a famous picture of a baby's hand, I can't, like 21 weeks, coming out of the sack the baby's in, 
holding the doctor's thumb while the doctor's performing surgery. And I show that to my students. They go, oh my goodness, it's got to be human. It's clear. It looks human. And then a student said, well, what about at 10 weeks? What about like six weeks when it looks a little bit more like an alien? You've seen those images. What about at four weeks when it's an embryo? It doesn't look human. I said, yes, it does. I said, at four weeks, the unborn looks human because it looks exactly what a human is supposed to look like at four weeks of development. We have a pretty sad legacy as human beings and in America, deciding that certain people look different from the rest of us and are disqualified from human rights. Slaves get to vote three-fifths of a person because their skin color. We've done this with women. We've done this with children. In fact, in the early 1900s, there was an African, a small African man by the name of Otabenga, brought over to America, put in a cage, and the New York Times ran an article that said, look at Otabenga. He's the missing link between chimps and between human beings. Can you imagine this? This materialistic Darwinian worldview, take a human being, put him in a cage like an animal, and look at him simply because he doesn't look the way people at that time thought a human being was supposed to look. Some of you may remember the movie The Elephant Man. How many of you have seen The Elephant Man? Most of you have. It's a story about a man born grossly disfigured. And he was mistreated, he was beaten until a pastor took him in, cared for him, and loved him. Well, he would walk around with a bag on his head because he didn't want people to freak out. And there's a scene in the movie where he falls on the ground in a subway. The bag comes off, and a little girl sees him and screams, and all of a sudden these people see him, and they start treating him like an animal. Get the animal out of here. Run him out of the subway, and people start chasing him. They chase him in a bathroom. He stops, and he's cornered, and there's this mob of people screaming at him, ready to physically harm him and treat him like an animal. And he steps back, and he screams something I'll never forget. He says, I am not an animal. I am a human being. And you see it dawn on the people. They slowly settle like this, realize the shame of what they were doing, and walk away. Friends, the unborn are valuable human beings made in the image of God. Out of convenience or out of inconvenience, our culture says they're dispensable. But as Christians, I realize there's people who are not Christians who are also pro-life, but as Christians, we are bound to believe and protect and care for the most vulnerable among us. Will that be you? Now, this morning I asked at the Pregnancy Resource Center, I said, would it be okay if I donate a bunch of my books and every time somebody buys a book, all of the money is going to the Pregnancy Resource Center. And of course, they said, sure. That sounds good. We need the funds. But think about this. Yes, they need the money. 
But go visit them someday. Listen to the stories of the people that they work with, and it'll break their heart. And it's easy to feel isolated and that you're alone because the rest of us are busy and we have things to do. I hope today we can give them a big enough check to go, you know what, South Shores loves you, and we stand behind you, and we believe in what, we're do- what you're doing. So the first thing is pick up one of those bottles, just stick it on your counter, throw quarters in there, and over time, give them some money. Pick one up and use it. Now, I hope you won't do this. Two years ago, my son, when he was 11, was out back helping give out bottles. I don't know who it was. I hope this person didn't go to our church. This lady walks out, says to my son, she says, I won't take one of those. Those women have made mistakes. They get to live with the consequences. I thought, shame on her. If we can't be a place for the wounded and the broken and those who've made choices they regret, then why on earth are we here? (laughs) What's the church supposed to be about? It's loving for those who cannot stand up for themselves. The book back there, so here's the deal. I'm donating a book only if you buy it. I brought a ton of books. If you buy it, I will donate, meaning all of the money you pay for it goes to the Pregnancy Resource Center. What would usually be profits and the cost of the book, 100% will go to them. I'm doing this to kind of motivate you to hopefully do it. I will meet you halfway, as that 80s Kenny Loggins song said. You don't remember that song. Never mind. So here's the book that are out there. Just to tell you, 100% to them. Number one, this talk is from a chapter in a book I wrote called Ethics. Four students talking through tough issues like abortion, issues like homosexuality. If you have kids or grandkids, what I talked about is one of the chapters in there. That's back there. Second, there's a study Bible for students. It's a Bible, but it's filled with all the toughest questions about this issue and many more. Answers to help students be equipped. That's back there. And then the one you mentioned, my father wrote evidence that demands a verdict when he was trying to disprove Christianity, ended up being convinced it was true because of the evidence. Just this fall, we updated it together as a father and son, and it's already sold 40% more than they thought in the first four months they thought it would sell in the entire year, which is exciting because it realized that people are hungry for answers and evidence for the faith. I'm going to sneak to the back but will you sacrifice even a small way? Even if you don't want a book, come up and give a dollar. Give five bucks. Let's bless the Pregnancy Resource Center. Tell them we love them, we stand behind them, and we value the unborn. God bless.